understanding union with Christ, why it isn't just religious pretending. And this is part two. It does build on last week's teaching. I'm not going to review last week's teaching, but it's, it's online. And, and I, this stands alone, but it, it does help to relate it to what was, what was covered last week. The title this morning is, What Kind of Union Do We Have with Christ?, and how does it happen? And that's a, that's a hard topic. What kind of union do we have with Christ? And how, by the way, sorry, but just while I think of it, because it relates to this, I get, I get piles and piles and piles and piles of emails. I did this reminder about a year ago, and I'm just, it's just a gentle reminder. It's just impossible for me, unless I don't do anything else and just sit at my computer and just answer emails. So if you sent me an email, I got... If you look at my inbox, there's, you know, you get like uh, 114 emails with questions about something I said. And I, I if you want to talk to me, call me, okay? Because I can't, I can't do that. I, I do three, sometimes four teachings uh, a week, and along with all those other things. And, uh, well, the board would fire me if I just sat there and just did emails all day. And it's not that I don't like you, Okay. It's just physically impossible hours in the day. What kind of union do we have with Christ? And how does it happen? We closed last week's teaching looking at Paul's shocking words. I talked about them a little bit. From 1 Corinthians 6, 13 to 17. This isn't the text, but I just want to bridge from last week and launch into today's subject, where Paul says to the church at Corinth, and there are moral issues in that congregation, 1 Corinthians 6, 13 to 17, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. It's interesting the way he reverses these. So the body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. And God raised up the Lord, and we also, and will also raise us up by his power. And the way that's going to work, by the way, is, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He conquered death, right? You don't have it in you to rise from the dead. This is going to happen from being in Christ, who conquered death, rose from the grave in a physical body. But there's implications. There are implications to this. Shall I then, shall I then, given all of this, shall I then take the members of Christ? Think about that for a minute. And make them members of a prostitute. I would have thought what Paul would say is, your body is for the Lord up here, so will I then take, will I then take this body that is for the Lord, and will I join my body to a prostitute? But you'll notice it's not what he does. I'm not making it up. Look at, look at, the, look at the words right in front of you. Shall I then take, not my body, shall I then take the, say it, 
Wow. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them... Would you have said this? I would never have said that. Never. Do you not know that who is joined to a prophet... Now, this is talking about the human body, right? Becomes one body with her. So there's the human body joined to a prostitute... But he says it's the members of Christ that are joined to that prostitute. For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Let's pray. This topic seems right at the heart of everything else regarding our salvation in the New Testament, and yet it doesn't get talked about all that much. To do so is almost a bit presumptuous without a lot of help, Lord. Come by your Holy Spirit and and help your church on both sides of the pulpit to express things clearly and to hear things clearly that your will be done in our lives today. Thank you, More than we can intelligently say, thank you for being one with Christ this day. And may all the freight that is packed into that become enlivened and warmed by your spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. It doesn't seem possible that Paul is saying what he's saying in that 15th verse. I talked about it. The believer is never divisible from his or her union with Christ. Now, Paul doesn't mean Christ becomes guilty of sexual sin. But what he does mean is that we are never separated from our oneness with Christ. My union with Christ isn't an intermittent union. It it isn't a union that can be turned on and off. It is a constant oneness with Christ. He is in me and I in him no matter what I do and where I go. That's Paul's point. The fact that we are members of Christ, 14, is such an actual reality. Not just a religious saying... It's such an actual reality that it is just as real as the unitedness our physical bodies would be experiencing in illicit sexual relations. My united with, unitedness with Christ is no less an actual reality than my unitedness with a prostitute. Unbelievable that he says that. It'd be blasphemous if I couldn't read it to you out of God's word. This is miles removed from the common picture of Christianity in the media, for sure, and increasingly in a lot of the church. Christians are people, listen to the descriptions. We're a Christian country. We forgive one another. That's what Christians are. Christians are people who are forgiving of others. Christians are people who follow the teachings of Jesus as best they can. 
Christians are people who are admirers of the golden rule. Christians are people who hope to go to heaven when they die. They are against bad people and bad deeds. Christians don't judge others lest they end up judged. We do the best we can. We go to church. We say our prayers. We read our Bibles. We are, as the media tells us, people of faith. Any faith, but faith. Which means we hold certain ideas. It's a mental thing. Certain concepts. Certain principles. Certain ideals. Hopefully about God and morality. Christians. Now there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But, but my point is, those are all external religious practices. We read, we think, we listen, we try to do, we try to obey, but none of that comes close to what Paul describes in his letters. He's constantly writing, along with apostles John and Peter and the recorded words of Jesus himself, he's constantly writing about being one with Christ, hidden in Christ, inside of Christ, Christ in you. So so in other words... Let me put it this way. The whole emphasis of what the New Testament says about Christianity isn't, first of all, about doing something. It is, first of all, about being something. Something happens. It's about being something you weren't before and couldn't possibly become on your own. Now... It's one thing to acknowledge that that's what the New Testament says. That's what we've kind of come to. That's the easy part. The the heavy lifting part is, is, uh, okay, Pastor Don, what kind of union is this? And how does it happen? That's the hard part. We're going to be in that for about three weeks. But there's only one proper starting point, and it's kind of neat the way we're, I'm sorry, but we are coming up to Christmas. Sooner or later, once again, Lord, the Christmas season is at our throats, you know. We're coming up to Christmas, and there's only one proper starting place. It's not the whole of it, but one starting place for describing our Union, our oneness, our unitedness with Christ. And it begins with the incarnation. And I hope everybody in this room knows about the incarnation. And it's my hope, my prayer, that somehow when we look at it today, you're going to go, oh, man. I never, I never dreamed that all that was happening in the incarnation. And that's a tall... It's a tall order. Point number one. Our participation in the incarnate Christ, the second Adam, is likened in the New Testament to our participation in the first Adam. This is an important text. If you've got the Bible in any form at all, look it up. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49.
1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49. There are some of these texts, you know, I'm sure you read, you've read through these texts. In your devotions, they're, they're kind of involved and they're the kind of text that you just read for the sake of saying, I covered 1 Corinthians 15 on Wednesday and now I can move on to 16. But, but there's a lot in these words. 1545. Thus it is written, quote, the first Adam, so that's the significant part. The first man, Adam. I did something with that. I don't know what I did. I don't know how to fix it. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural... And then the spiritual. Adam in the garden, what he's saying, that comes before Jesus in the incarnation. Okay? The first man was from the earth. A man of dust. But notice it's still, it's still a man. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust... So also are those who are of the dust. So we're like Adam. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne, this is it, borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the first Adam, we know the story. More important than the dating of creation is the meaning of creation. That's what we're looking at here. The first Adam was the first man created out of the dust in a specific, historic act of creation by God himself. God didn't do that. By the way, you know, I'm sorry, but these little bumper stickers, you know, puppies are people too. No, they aren't. Jesus, Jesus, the Father, God, spoke all those other beings into existence. Monkeys, aardvarks, bamboo, uh, baboons, elephants, crocodiles. He spoke those into existence. He did not do that with formed him. Breathed into him. Didn't do that with any kitten, puppy, didn't do it with man. Bears his image, his breath. So that's the first Adam. God made him. The last Adam, that's what the text calls Jesus here. The last Adam is God the Son, Jesus, our Messiah and Redeemer. And, and the, fact, the fact that he is called the last Adam Adam means we're being pointed to the incarnation. This is not God the Son before the incarnation. He's the second Adam because he becomes a man like the first Adam. So he's another Adam. 
in the sense of being a living human, human person. That's why he specifically and very intentionally is called the man from heaven, verse 48. Paul's doing something. He's doing something. We're being pointed to the full humanity of Jesus of Nazareth. He was as fully human, and what I want to say is as fully human in every sense of that term. How human was he? He was as human as the first Adam was human. He was that human. But why this link to Adam? We call our Lord by many titles. Sometimes not that precisely, but I'm sure he's gracious. We call him Jesus. We call him Jesus Christ, which in our English speaking makes it look like Christ is his second name, like Don Horbin, Jesus Christ, which isn't, that's not true. We call him Lord. We call him the Son of God. My very favorite term by far, God the Son. That building right down the street this way, the Mormons, they will call Jesus the Son of God. They will never call him God the Son. Jehovah's Witnesses will call Jesus the Son of God. They will never call him God the Son. But I digress. But as far as I know, nobody calls him Adam number two. Think of all the worship choruses we've sung. Have you ever heard us singing, praise to you, Adam number two? We, like, we don't, <laughs> we don't do that. But technically, that's what, I'm not being sacrilegious. That's what Paul does here. He's, he's the last Adam. There was a first Adam. He is the last Adam. So what's going on? Paul, why this, why this title? Here's my thinking. Paul, in that 1 Corinthians text, he's, he's, he's reaching for unreachable things. And he's helping me understand that my union with Christ is a real union. And he wants me to picture it, to frame it, to compare it with another union that I should be able to understand better, and that is my union with the first Adam. Because if there's one thing I know deep in my bones, and so do you, if you never had a Bible, there's one thing we all know deep in our bones, and it's this. We are affected by being in Adam number one. Am I right? I feel the weight of it. I know what it's like to live with Adam number one. I get angry, I get impatient, I can exaggerate stories, I get upset when somebody wrongs me, I want to defend myself all the time, I like being right, I like having other people see when I'm right. 
Rania and I'll have a discussion about something. We'll go for a walk, and after a little while, in, in jest, I'll say something like, so, so after we've come to this whole conclusion, what have we learned? And she'll say, well, I was wrong. And then I'll say, and more importantly, <laughs> she'll say, okay, you were right. Let it go already. By the way, me being right, only ha- I have to celebrate it because it only happens like leap year, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am not the Don Horbin I would be if I weren't tied to Adam and his sin. That's what I know for sure. And every time I drive past that cemetery when I drive home up Main Street North, glance to my left where my dad is buried, and I'm reminded that I really am just like Adam number one, and like Paul says, of the dust. I'm of the dust. Now comes the important point. Here's what Paul's doing here. It's not easy to get our heads around it. I'm being constrained by Paul to behold, to look at the effects of being in Adam. The first Adam. Because my oneness with that Adam is not make-believe. It's a hardcore reality. It has changed Everything about this whole fallen world. Look around you. Watch the news. You can see see the stamp, the engraving, the oneness we have with Adam number one. What, What are we going to do about this? I can't fix this. Even Donald Trump won't be able to fix this. You can't fix it. We are, we are locked into, aren't we? We are locked into being in Adam number one. We are in Adam. We are chained to his failure to obey God. We all died just like he died and for the very same reason. So any solution to this mess has to come from outside of us. Because we're the ones in Adam. Point number two. The power of the incarnation works in two directions at the same time. I thought long and hard if there was an easier way to say it, but I'm staying with that one. It's at, it's at this point, we're ready. We're just ready to start talking about the incarnation of God the Son. Because the the incarnation, God the Son taking on real humanity, my humanity coming into this world, that incarnation, it penetrates deep into time itself and it works in two directions at the same time. It works backwards and it works forwards. First, how it works backwards. Jesus was born in Bethlehem long after Adam was dead and gone and off the scene. But it works backwards like this. In the humanity that Jesus assumes, he comes, 
He comes all the way down into all that we are in Adam and his sin. He comes all the way back right into that original Genesis 1, 2, into that undoing point of Adam's sin, that decreation of Adam and his rebellion. Jesus comes in a humanity that assumes everything about our fallen nature. Jesus takes my fallen nature, all that I am in Adam, all that I am in Adam number one. Remember I talked about knowing it, feeling it? He takes all of that into his sinless self and he fully sanctifies and restores it by uniting everything about my fallen self into a perfectly obedient, God-pleasing life. Please get this. Jesus' full manhood works right back into the fabric of the fall and starts to undo it in his perfect person, his perfect human person. We can't do that for ourselves because we're in Adam. Paul's saying, Yeah, but you're, you're in Christ. He came and assumed everything about that first Adam and our participation in him, and he, and he takes that into himself. Again, we should be grateful to Paul for daring to say the unthinkable when you look at 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21... Paul can't even talk about proclaiming the gospel, missionary work, proclaiming the gospel. Shine your light and let the whole world see. What what, what light are we singing about? The song doesn't really say. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Now what does Paul mean? Here's the message goes to everybody. Is it that you need to come and just kind of say you're sorry and try to be better? And he makes it clear that when when Paul thinks about the gospel and spreading the message, here's what he's thinking about. 21. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son. Do you see this? To be sin. That's not. I, I read this for years. And when I came to words like that. It would be like. Like kind of fake sin. I mean he just comes and says. You know like it's like. This person owes a whack of money. And I come and just say. Well, he owes a thousand bucks. He doesn't have a thousand bucks. He's got two hundred bucks. I got eight hundred here. And, and this isn't something that Jesus just gives. It's, he made him to be sin. What kind of sin are you thinking about there? Who knew no sin? 
so that, here's the words, right? This is our series. Not by him, not because of him, but in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Notice again that nothing of Christ's life and death has any effect by external admiration. How nice. No. Christ ties a very tight knot with each of our fallen selves, us at our worst. He pulls us into his own real humanity. Paul's emphatic so that in him, 21, we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ doesn't just offer empathy for Don Horbin. He doesn't just come as a sacrifice for sins external to his own being, like, like paying money. Terminology, I know, it, it, it's slippery stuff. And I know most people mean more when they use the term. So I'm not, I'm not overly critical. But I, I'm more and more convinced that the New Testament doesn't think of salvation as something Jesus gives us. It thinks of it as something Jesus becomes for us and us in him. More and more, as I read the New Testament, I see it in John. I see it in Paul. I see it in the words of Jesus, like, like a branch abiding in a vine. So it's not like a letter being delivered. It's, 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 it's tied a branch and a vine, right? That's what makes a branch and a vine work. The vine doesn't come and say, here, let me offer you life, branch. It, there's, we can't get there. It has to be this. Let me try and say it again, maybe in different words. God the Son unites our sinful selves to himself. Not mystically, the way he does it is, he comes and assumes fallen humanity. He doesn't sin, he's sinless. Lest anybody doubt my stand on the sinlessness of Christ, I'm emphatic on it. But he assumes my fallenness. In other words, he doesn't come and take on the nature of Adam before the fall. He comes and he takes on the nature of Adam and everyone else after the fall. Those are the ones that need redeeming, in my understanding. Is that correct? He made him to be sin. Not just a price tag for sin. This, is, this stretches, our, stretches our minds, doesn't it? But to be sin. For us, to, to become sin for us in his sinless person. We're not just purified like being washed off with a hose and offered a divine hug. Our most wretchedly wicked selves are taken into Christ before we do anything. He becomes fully what we are. And then these fallen selves of ours are, in the words 
we say more easily than we understand, this is why. This is why we are crucified with Christ. It's my humanity that he takes to the cross. He doesn't have to die for his own sins, right? The crucifixion isn't imaginary. We are, we are in Christ when he's nailed to that cross because he became one with our fallen selves in his incarnate humanity. I'm going to try it again. I'm going to try it again. Jesus became everything God hates on the cross. Does that jolt you a little bit? And he expressed it verbally, that complete forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it was real forsakenness. This is the only place in the whole New Testament where Jesus doesn't address God as Father. The only place. Why? That's how much he's united with Don Horban on the cross and my alienation from God. That's, that's the Don Horban he's taking to the cross. This is, this is deep stuff. We tend to picture and describe the incarnation only from one perspective. And it's easy to miss the fact that Jesus, God the Son, isn't just the mediator between, hear me, isn't just the mediator between God and man... He is also the mediator between man and God. It isn't just semantics. But the work isn't just from God down. The work is also from man up. He is the one righteous man. Who, one with me in all of my sin, is also one with God in all of his purity and love. He makes that bridge happen because there's a real knot He's tied to fallen Don Horban in everything that he does. He doesn't just accomplish my redemption. It's true. It's true. But it, he is the substance of my redemption. Through his full oneness with me and all of my sin, he, in his full assumption of all that I am, he heals, he purifies, he restores the worst of sinners by his perfect obedience in his life and by fully bearing all the judgment of my guilt in his death. I'm in there with him. I'm in there with him. Let me come at it one more time. And we're almost done. Maybe the picture becomes clearer when we do a comparison. Let's compare our union with Christ in our sin. I'm crucified with Christ. Let's compare that with sacrifices for sin under the Old Covenant. You can read about them in the Old Testament. They're all over the place. There's the priest... He's coming to the holy place on behalf of the sins of the people. 
there are two lambs or goats with him. One will be sent away into the wilderness. The other will die. But before that unlucky lamb has its throat slit, the priest will lay his hand on the lamb's head. And what that's all about, so the Bible says, is symbolically... The priest with the people is imparting, okay? Imparting the sins of the people to the lamb. Do any sins actually flow through that hand into the lamb's head? No. No, they don't. But God's looking forward to the fulfillment of this, okay? The priest will lay his hand on the lamb's head and the lamb will die and the blood will be shed. He is symbolically dying for the sins of the people. But the nature, the nature of that lamb can't actually receive or be united with the sins of human beings because after all, it's just a lamb. Can't relate the sins of the people. The lamb doesn't know what's going on. So there's no there's no meaningful connection between the lamb and those sinful human beings. Underscore. No meaningful connection, right, between the lamb and the sins of those human beings. But God, for a while... Acts says for a while he will overlook. That's the word. He will overlook the sins of those people because the lamb is going to be considered in light of one who can be an actual receiver, an actual bearer of Don Horban's sin. There is one coming so fully human So exactly like Don Horbin in his sin. Not in committing it, but in assuming it. Make that distinction always. Jesus was sinless. But he takes on my sin. There's a connection between my sin and the humanity of Jesus. He is so fully one with the first Adam that Adam's sin... Don Horbin's sin, Chris Mick's sin, Chad Glendening's sin, all of your sin are meaningfully and actually assumed in that human person, that sinless human person of Christ. So that, here it comes, we will be one. We will be so totally united with this second Adam just as we were with the first, that we will be crucified with him. Now, don't just think of it at Christmas. The incarnation defines the Christian's existence. The meaning of the incarnation is the word took on human flesh in order to incorporate us into his life. If you remember where we are, I said the incarnation works in two directions. Anybody remember that? Backwards, that's what we've been looking at. Back into Adam, 
We're in Adam. We know it. Jesus goes and he ties himself to Adam, full humanity, taking that into himself. Backwards then, forwards. And there's something too precious that I wanted to close with. The incarnation presses into the future, not just the past. So it does, it reaches all the way back to the assumption of mankind and all of his sin and brokenness. This is why we are crucified with Christ. But it doesn't leave us there. The incarnation carries us into the future. He doesn't stop after taking our wicked selves to the cross. Because... The one who came, Adam, first Adam, Adam number one, all of his brokenness, decreation, that's what happens with his sin. The incarnation comes, fully human, fully human Christ, comes and assumes all that is broken. He's sinless, but he assumes all that is broken, all that is needing uh, restoration and, and pardon. He takes all of that and he takes it, us in him, to the cross. But here's the thing. The one who came and did that, this is why the Trinity is so important. There's no Christianity without the Trinity. You can have Judaism without the Trinity. You can have Islam without the Trinity. You can't have Christianity. The one who came and fully assumed fallen, broken Adam, number one, is also the one who created it all in the first place. The one who comes and takes us into himself is going to finish what he started because he did the first creation and he's going to make a new creation. Only as he does it, the man Christ Jesus is carrying all of Don Horbin and Adam number one and all of you people with him. With him. The incarnation is pointing to a new creation because the incarnate one is the original creator. So we don't just get, okay, you're pardoned, I let you off the hook. That's a means to an end. And the end is a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. Because the one who has carried us with him to the cross and then the resurrection, we are still in Christ. Paul says we are risen with Christ. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. We are, Paul says, seated with him in heavenly places. The glorious future that awaits is just as sure as the pardon on the cross. Because while he fully assumed sinful humanity, he is also the creator of that humanity. And knows the original intent and the original design and what he wants it to become. This is what makes Christianity different from any philosophy or teaching or religion that you might hear about. It is the creator recreating what sin decreated in the garden. And we are in him. Colossians 1, 15, 16. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn. You know why he's called that? The firstborn of all creation? Because in his resurrected body, that's the firstborn part. So don't picture God with a womb. It's, it's, it's the firstborn who conquered death, came out of the grave. 
So there's one point where the new creation is already in existence. And Paul says, we're in him. He, he, he took us with him in that. For by him, all things created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. With all due respect, the greatest work of creation isn't Genesis 1. There's another project, and it's already begun. It's already completed in Christ's risen body. The creator came to pull the old creation fully into himself. In all of its sin, in all of its brokenness, in all of its damaged state, he has defanged the original fall. And more than that, much more than that, he's healing and remaking all that was lost. So he didn't just die for your sins. He conquered death. You are in him. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's already carried each one of us in his own fully human self. The man, Christ Jesus, has ascended. And there's nothing in this whole world that can undo that wonderful reality. I hope, I hope when we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. I hope that something in your heart, you don't, you don't just sing great about the greatness of Jesus and think of Superman who can leap tall buildings. When you sing of the greatness, the uniqueness, the power of the name of Jesus, think about this. Because there's no one else on earth who has done this. He's absolutely unique. God the Son. Well, that's a lot to absorb. Are you still with me? Let's pray.